Good morning. I'm Ann Schindler, and this is First Coast Connect. Today, when the home you love doesn't love you back. In a new podcast episode, former First Coast Connect host Al Letson chronicles his return to his hometown of Jacksonville at a time of escalating racial discord and danger. This morning, we're delighted to welcome back to the program our favorite poet, playwright, performer, and podcaster, Al Letson. Hey, 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 Al. Hey, hey, hey. How you doing? It's great. Uh, we're doing great, and it's great to hear from you. Uh, for our listeners who need to know what you've been doing since you uh, vacated the big chair here at First Coast Connect, what are you working on? Uh, well, uh, I'm still hosting uh, Reveal, which is on WJCT. Uh, I think we come on Saturdays. Uh, but yeah, I'm still hosting uh, Reveal. Uh, one of my 10th year doing that. And I am currently writing for a television show uh, that I cannot tell the name of. Um, but uh, it's a good show. And uh, yeah, I'm enjoying it. Terrific. Well, we're glad to have you back. I I, I sure you're missing some of your pals here at WJCT, and I know that uh, we all miss you a lot. I I I can't tell you how much I miss you guys. I don't miss the early mornings, but uh, <laughs> I miss WJCT and everybody there. It's, it's my home. Well, it's extra early for you out there on the West Coast, so so thanks for it. Um, we're going to get into one of your recent projects here because it involves Jacksonville. Yeah. Breaking news now out of Jacksonville, a shooting there on the city's west side has now resulted in, quote, a number of fatalities. That's according to Jacksonville Mayor August 26, 2023. A white supremacist murders three black people at a Dollar General in Jacksonville. By now, many people won't even remember it. It's just another day, another mass shooting. Time can move so fast. But for me, that day, I can't let it go. Al, you were having to cover this story as it happened here in Jacksonville. If you're comfortable talking about it, explain what it's like to be functioning as a journalist and a person of color when covering racist violence like this. Yeah, I mean, like, it's, um, you know, it cuts a, a bunch of ways, right? Uh, because not only uh, was I covering it and not only was it a, you know, racist attack that, attack that was aimed, you know, at, at at, at killing black people, but also striking fear throughout black people throughout black people in the first coast. Um, you know, it, Jacksonville's my home. Um, it's the place that I go to, you know, get away from the craziness of all the other things that I'm doing. Um, it, it feels Jacksonville to me. Every time I come home, it feels like a warm hug. It feels like, oh God. Um, and so, you know, to have the place that feels sacred to me be violated in this way um and the thing is that like i'm not you know i'm not naive or pollyanna about jacksonville like you know i've i've recognized that the city can be a very violent place especially you know depending on where you you live like uh kind of dictates how much violence you'll see but you know i think that like uh, a shooter with a racist manifesto um, that literally is pointed at black people. Uh, it it felt different to me, and so yeah, it was it was a lot uh, covering all of that stuff and and talking to uh, people who are directly affected by it. And you've worked for the investigative podcast Reveal for like a decade now, um, and you've tackled a lot of really difficult subjects, um, including race. And I'm thinking particularly of that uh, Mississippi. I can't say the word series the, yep. in the name of a mm -hmm. Nina Simone song, right? Uh, it, but in it, you report on the murder of Billy Joe Johnson, a Mississippi teen who was killed while dating a white girl. Um, mm -hmm. wh what was different about being in Jacksonville, your home, uh, when you it, were... You know, yeah. it, it's a little, like, actually, the reason why I fell into reporting Mississippi GD, uh, which was like a, a long time uh investigation like i think I, I heard about billy joe's death um 10 years before i mean i i reported a little bit on billy joe's death 10 years before that series came out and so we worked on it for like three years uh in earnest but i think what drew me to that uh story was that billy's story uh reminded me of growing up in clay county um 
in, uh, in, in Orange Park and some of the things that I had to deal with as a, as a young man at his age and, and, and things that, you know, other young black people were dealing with in, in Clay County back then. So, um, so really like there was a lot of parallels in, um, in that investigation that kind of made me want to do it. Um, so I think though that like, you know, when it comes to the shooting and, uh, you know, dealing with that, you know, one of the things that I talk about in that hour that, that we did, um, is that, you know, I'm, I'm, I've dealt with a lot of racism in Jacksonville before. Um, I mean, <laughs> I give you so many, uh, uh, stories and little incidents that happened to me growing up in Jacksonville. So for me, like, it wasn't like the shooting was a big surprise. It was more like feeling that even though I've dealt with this before in Jacksonville, that something feels different lately. Like it's moving, um, like the temperature is rising in a way that I hadn't seen before. And so that was the thing that I was trying to reflect in the reporting. Yeah, and it's something that you actually don't shy away from in the episode. Let's listen to a little of that. Sure. The emotion here in this predominantly African-American community is still pretty raw. Some people are fearful. A lot of people are angry. And many people feel as if their community here in Jacksonville is being terrorized. This tragedy is a deadly manifestation of a growing problem in the state. Like I said, I've seen my share of racism and hatred in Florida, but what's been happening recently, it feels different, more targeted, more intense. In the past, I've always had clarity. There were places and parts of town I just didn't go to because I knew I wasn't welcome there. But when a racist mass shooter drives to a black neighborhood to kill black people, or when Nazis show up at Disney World, whatever clarity I had is gone. There's nowhere that's safe. I want to understand what's driving this change because this is my city, my state, my heart. Some beautiful writing there, Al. At what point did you decide that you would want to do a podcast episode on this incident? And did you have any reservations about doing it? Uh, yeah, I decided probably, um, you know, we were thinking about, Reveal was thinking about doing uh, an, uh, an episode on Florida uh, for a bit, um, just because, you know, Ron DeSantis at the time was in the presidential uh, race, and I had been uh, hearing a lot of rumbling about what was going on in, in Jacksonville schools. Um, and that was before I came out to uh, to be at home for the summer and host First Coast Connect. So when I got here and I started talking to a lot of friends who were teachers, then I started seeing um, what was happening, you know, around the city, then I started thinking, well, that's the story I think that I want to tell. Um, and as we're doing this and we're collecting all the, the data and the, the stories about, you know, the, the rising uh, tide of extremism here, uh, I mean, like, literally, like, I'm right in the middle of, you know, researching this stuff and talking to people, the, the mass shooting happened. And so for me, it felt like, you know, when you're telling the story, it, it's all, you're always, like, trying to think about, like, What's your way in and, and, and how you're going to wrap it up? At least I do. And so to me, the, the shooting, um, it felt like a good way into a story that was already developing. So, so that's kind of how we, we jumped on it. But prior to, you know, the shooting, I had already decided that we were going to do like some stories on Florida and what was going on. It just came into focus with the shooting. We're talking to Al Letson about his latest podcast episode on race uh, in, in the Sunshine State. It's called Black in the Sunshine State. Just ahead, we're going to talk about the impact of a massive fire on downtown development. So stick around for that. But we want to hear from you. Give us a call at 904-549-2937. You can also email us at firstcoastconnect at wjct.org. You can also reach out on Facebook and Instagram or tag us on X at FCC on air. We have a call, Stanley Good morning, Stanley. Welcome to First Coast Connect. Yeah, good morning. Good morning. This is uh, African History Month. Uh, and also, number first, and, and you do a fantastic job. I'm very impressed with you. But I have an issue that I must address. And the issue is, I'm an African-American. I'm not people of color. Now, some African-Americans go with that. But that's racist. People of color. We are Africans, or we are African-American, or we black. Thank you. 
Thank you. Appreciate that, Stanley. I, I think that the distinction being made these days, um, not to contradict, but I mean, there are people in this country that aren't of African descent, you know, that are people of color. And I apologize if that phrase is not uh, amenable. Um, Al, what are your thoughts on that? No, I mean, you know, I, I think that everybody's got their, uh, their, their, their different things that they like and, and dislike. And I haven't heard Stanley's voice forever. Stanley, how you doing, man? Um, I, I would say, uh, I don't think it's, uh, you know, me personally, I don't think it's racist to call, uh, people, black people, people of color. I, I, I identify as black, but, um, I don't get offended when people say people of color. So Al, you incorporate some of the interviews that you did on the air at, uh, while you were here at First Coast Connect. I don't know, remember if Stanley specifically was one of them. Um, but you also incorporated media coverage at the time. And you did some new interviews as well, um, including with Republican lawmaker Randy Fine. What? Why did you seek him out in particular? Well, you know, Randy Fine uh, had been uh, a DeSantis lieutenant in all of these bills that uh, that DeSantis uh, put out, and um, specifically like with the Stop Woke Act and uh, and some other things, and so. Um, I felt like, you know, well, well, a uh, Ron DeSantis wouldn't talk to me um, for this for this uh, story, and if Ron wouldn't talk to me, I felt like the next person to talk to would be uh, his lieutenant, which you know, and and I think Randy Fine is, uh, you know, I think he's an interesting character in the sense that he's pushing this this legislation. That, you know, really a lot of, you know, from my understanding of the legislation is that it feels like it is targeting African-Americans and African-American history. And yet on the flip side, like he's a Jewish man and he uh, wants to protect Jewish history. And so for me, like the idea of um, of talking to somebody like that and really trying to get to understand them was important. You had a pretty healthy back and forth with him about his decisions that kind of seem contradictory. Like, uh, you know, he is supporting the governor's anti-woke curriculum, which restricts how and when you can teach, you know, what you can teach about racism in America, but also mandating the teaching of a particularly horrific episode of Black history, the Ocoee Massacre. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's I, I still don't know how to take all of that because I think that, like, you know, I think that, that Representative Fine um, has his own version of history uh, that works specifically for him. Uh, it doesn't really work for me. And so that was the question that I had with him is, is how do you balance those two things? Um, and I don't think that I got a, a really, um, what's the word, satisfying answer from him. But like as a journalist, my job is to ask the question and to push him, you know, to, to, to push him to get the answer. But, you know, sometimes you don't get the answer you're looking for. Well, let's hear a little bit of that interview that you did with State Representative Randy Fine. It didn't say you couldn't teach bad American history. It just said you couldn't teach slavery and then look at somebody like me and say, and you should feel bad about it because it's your fault. But do you, do you think that that's actually happening in schools where like we uh, schools were talking about slavery and then turning to the white kids saying you should feel bad about this? There were examples of it. So, uh, Al, what did he provide in the way of examples? None. <laughs> like he, he uh none. He he uh at the end of the conversation his uh his office sent over books that they thought were questionable. Um and I, I don't have those books in front of me. I think he said it in the hour, but I don't have them in front of me. But uh my opinion of those books is that no, they were not uh they they weren't questionable to me. And I thought it was interesting that the three books that he sent us were all written by black women. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I, I don't think that he, in my opinion, made his case on those things. So in the episode, you trace a broad and compelling arc of history. You're comparing the rewriting or at least the reshaping of history to the story of Axe Handle Saturday in Jacksonville. Explain why you see echoes of that story in the current curriculum battles in Florida. Well, I think that, like, you know, when it came to Axe Handle Sunday, like, I grew up, I, I moved to Jacksonville as a kid. Like, I moved to Jacksonville when I was 10 years old. 
and uh, and I lived in Jacksonville, you know, ever since. Uh, I mean, I, I'm I'm still currently I have a house in Jacksonville. I pay taxes in Jacksonville. Like I'm, I, I still consider myself uh, living in Jacksonville, right? Um, I'm just out here working, but you know. I was in Jacksonville for a very long time before I even heard about Axe Handle uh, Saturday. And so, um, for me, the idea that, like, that history happened, like, not far from where I grew up in downtown. And it was something that we didn't talk about. I think the first time that I heard about it was when it was, like, I guess the 50th anniversary, maybe. Um, and that may have been the first time I heard about it. And then, like, you know, trying to, I mean, I feel like now it's a lot easier to learn about it because you've got um, books by, you know, people that were there, like Roddy Hurst and and, um, and several other accounts that you can, you know, go out and find. But I think back then you didn't have those resources. And so, uh, yeah, it just was kind of, I felt like it was written out of the history, like people didn't want to talk about it. And the mayor of Jacksonville at the time, you know, basically try to sweep it under the rug and say it never happened. So I think there's a lot of um, parallels to that and what's happening when it comes to African-American history. I think that, you know, like I say at the end of the episode, that um, what it feels like is that the administration, the DeSantis administration, um, does not ever want to talk about, like, the hardship that African-Americans have had in this state or in this country, but he does want to celebrate. Yeah, but look, you're, you're all good now, and let's go, let's celebrate that. And I think that you can't celebrate everything being all good because everything is not all good um, without talking about, like, how we got here. It was, um, Jelani Cobb was in town here recently, as you might know, and, you know, one of the things that he said in and his uh you know, coverage and and research on race is that he sees what's happening today as sort of a reaction to the fact that there has been such progress in terms of recognizing historical wrongs, things like systemic racism, um, that these are, you know, attempts in a kind of panicked fig leaf way of trying to, you know, range some of that back in. Um, but that he took a certain amount of, um, uh, uh, you know, confidence in the fact that that meant it was being effective, that that meant it was going to be um, part of the dialogue going forward and that it was kind of like the, the cat's out of the bag, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with that. I think that, like, you know, um, whenever you get progress, um, it, it's a pendulum. The other side uh, is going to push back against that. Like, nothing is ever... Um, I think, you know, there's a... There's a, uh, a, a, a biography on um a, a biopic on netflix called uh rustin it's about like one of my favorite uh civil rights uh leaders Byron rustin and, I, and and in studying Byron rustin um his life and his activism was a series of steps forward and steps back and steps forward and steps back and i think that that is exactly like you know what we um are seeing is that like we step forward and then you know it pushes back uh i think that you know, a lot of the laws that we're seeing about, like, stopping woke and uh, and changing the history, that is, in my opinion, a direct um, oppositional force against uh, the 1619 Project that uh, came out from uh, the New York Times that was, you know, headed by Nicole Hannah-Jones. It was really about, like, writing the history of America and really talking about this history that we, we, we tend to ignore, you know, with, like, one of the things that I spoke to Nicole Hannah-Jones and one of the things that she talked about is that, like, we love to talk about this part of history because it feels good to us, but we don't want to talk about that part of history because it doesn't feel good to us. And her point is that, like, you can't talk about one without talking about the other. You have to talk about it all. And I think that that's where we're at, is that, like, you know, all of these laws that, not all of them, but the laws that DeSantis has put out that is specifically about uh, history and how it's thought, it's a direct swing back against the idea that maybe we aren't, tell- we haven't been telling the whole story. Interestingly, you, I mean, you are able to weave a lot of elements into this podcast episode, um, that, you know, that kind of starts with the shooting as its main focus, but then you have all these tendrils that connect to it. And one of the things that you explore 
are the connections to the issue of black representation writ large. A former U.S. congresswoman from Florida, Carrie Meek, is a big part of that. Uh, Can you just remind us who she is and why her election was significant at the time? Yeah. So there had not been a uh, black representative in Florida for 100 years after uh, Reconstruction. And... um, or something like close to 100 years. And so uh, when the legislature, the Florida legislature, passed a law basically saying that, you know, black people need representation. They need somebody from their community to represent their community. And Meek won that election. And so it had been, you know, a very long time since we've had um, black representation in the legislature, in the Florida legislature. So her uh, election was huge and monumental, and it's like I mean I think that her election is um, indicative of like what DeSantis is trying to do in the sense that DeSantis probably wouldn't have a problem talking about um, Representative uh, Meeks winning that election, but he wouldn't want to talk about the fact that there's been it, it took a hundred years to get there, right? And so to me, it's just like can't talk about one without the other because if you lose one you ultimately lose um you ultimately lose what makes the other important if that makes sense mm-hmm. and you say in the in the podcast episode there's there was almost two million black floridians at the time that she was elected but that the state hadn't had a black representative in congress for a hundred years not since uh i guess uh reconstruction yeah yeah um, and so, and it was really immediately after slavery that her predecessor was elected. So, um, it just an astonishing l- lack of representation, um, which is perhaps not, uh, shocking, but still kind of a, a surprise. I think when people realize that, that that long period without any black representative happened. Yeah. Yeah. It's, a. Uh, um, you know, I mean, I think that's why history is so important so that we can look back and really understand what happened in the past because it gives context today. Daryl? Yeah, yep, yep. Can you hear me? Yep, yep. Yeah, I was just saying that, like, I I think that that's why the the past is so important, because it gives context to today. Um, In this uh, segment, um, you also, you know, tackle a difficult topic, um, one that you also covered a lot while you were at First Coast Connect, which is the issue of the Confederate monuments. Um, and that's an issue that has lingered for a long time with kind of fits and starts over um, over time. Would you, you know, look to this uh, removal that finally happened um, after you left and uh, with a little bit of hope? Let's hear from um, just a little bit from the from the podcast. Being at home in Jacksonville, watching all of this play out, from the rise of extremism to changes in education to redistricting efforts, it's a lot. And yet, folks in the Black community and the allies I've talked to were steadfast and believed that change was possible. And I gotta be honest with you, I wasn't so sure. But a couple weeks ago, something happened. I think it's gonna happen. The last monument to the Confederacy in Jacksonville came down. So do you feel hopeful, Al? I mean, when you when I listen to that, it sounds sort of like a hopeful note that you choose to end on. Uh, I'm not hopeful. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I am. uh, uh, I believe that change can happen. And I believe that the only way that change happens is if people, uh, like the people that uh, that that fought, the, the activists that fought to get it torn down, uh, the, the the mayor who was courageous in uh, in bringing it down. Like I think that that is how change happens, and it's amazing that like uh, just like everywhere else in the world that there are people who are willing to sacrifice and put their uh, names, livelihood, and, and safety on the line to, um, to stand up for what's right. And I think that that is a beautiful thing. Am I, I, am, am I hopeful about um, the direction that Florida is going? Uh, I, I'm not. 
Um, I think that uh, there are, I think that everything moves in a pendulum. And I think that honestly, like we have been and we will continue to be in a challenging space uh, for a good little bit, you know, and I think ultimately it'll come back around. Um, But I don't know how long it will be until it comes back around. And I don't know how many lives will be affected until it comes back around. And so um, but I do think that, like, it's not, you know, um, I made this episode because I, because I love Jacksonville. Like, I love it. It's my home. Uh, I get frustrated with it all the time, but I love it, love it, love it. And I feel like the only way that you move forward is whether, you know, I, I, I feel like moving forward with uh pessimism isn't exactly the, the strongest way you can move forward. I think, you know, you have to move forward with some idea that, that things can change. And I absolutely believe things can change. I think the thing that I'm thinking about a lot is that, like, I believe things can change, but who gets left behind uh, in the meantime and who gets hurt in the meantime? I'm curious, you know, since you left, the sheriff's office wrapped its investigation and released the racist manifesto that the shooter in this um, awful uh, tragedy at Dollar General wrote. Um, it, it It's kind of unreadable. And some um, local news outlets chose kind of not to use any of it or to talk about it. They've stopped using his name. Um, but I wonder what your thoughts are about the decision to release that um, in part because it's, you know, not just uh, awful racism, but it, it is a call to action um, that he's making. Um, and mm-hmm. it seems like could be potentially a really dangerous document to distribute. Yeah, I, I, um, I'm a little conflicted on it because I think that, like, in, in, on one hand, I think it's important to, uh, you know, cast daylight on on the things that, that have been done to like really talk about what's happened and really get the information out there. On the flip side of that, I think that, you know, um, these manifestos can be seen and used by people with bad intentions as recruitment tools. And so I, you know, I would not, um, far be it from me to tell a news director uh, what they should and shouldn't do with their 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 work. I think that um, as long as they have like really spirited conversations about whether to put it out and they really thought about it, I think that, you know, whatever decision they made, they made what they thought was best for their, um, for their organization. Um, so I, you know, I, I don't want to like cast blame and tell somebody that they shouldn't have put out information. Um, because I know as a journalist, like those conversations, they're really hard. I'll give you an example. Like, Many years ago, like in 2016, I interviewed uh, Richard Spencer. And Richard Spencer at the time was the uh, white supremacist du jour. Um, you know, like, and he was going on all sorts of programs. But the way he was being framed is that, like, he was a sexy new think tank that had radical ideas. And um, he was not a sexy new think tank. He was just preaching hate. It's old school hate. There was nothing sexy about it. And there was nothing new about it. But he had the sheen that he was doing something new. And so um, for me, the reason why we interviewed him is to pull the mask off and to show people exactly who he is. And and I think on a whole, we were successful with that. Three years later, I had the opportunity to talk to him again. Um, and we did, but we were very smart and targeted about how we talked to him and what we included in the uh, interview that we let out. Because we, I realized that at that point in his career, the damage had already been done to him and any other publicity I gave to him was just that. It was publicity. It was good for him no matter what. And so it was like thinking about like when and where you use those type of things. So you are getting out information and not necessarily helping his racist cause. It, it was a big conversation that we had in the newsroom and it took a really long time for us to strike the balance that felt right for everybody. In, in the newsroom. And I think it's the same thing when it comes to news organizations and reporting these things with these manifestos and so forth and so on. But you just have to have a spirited debate where everybody's really honest, like how they see the world um, and figure out that fine line to put it out. 
I do not want to be the person who is the arbiter of all things right. I'm just saying that that's the way we we went about it. I mean, that also speaks to why it's so important to have diverse newsrooms, diversity Absolutely. in the newsroom. Absolutely. Well, Al Letson, um, we are so happy to uh, get in touch with you again, and um, we appreciate you waking up extra early to talk to us. Uh, <laughs> but stay in touch. Keep us, uh, uh, you know, a abreast of your ongoing projects so we can touch base again soon. I would love to. I love you guys. I miss you guys. And I'm so glad you're in the big chair doing such a great job. I listen on the podcast. Good job. Good job. Al, thank you. We'll be back in just a minute. Mutts away from me, you know. I don't find this stuff amusing anymore. If you'll be my bodyguard, I can be your long lost pal. I can call you Betty, Betty, when you call me, you can call me out. A man walks down the street, he says, Why am I short of attention? Got a short little span of attention, and all my nights are so long. Where's my wife and family? What if I die here? Who'll be my role model now that my role model is gone? Gone. Duck back down the alley with some Welcome back. The three-day fire at the seven-story Doro Rise is out, and the luxury apartment building is now a total loss. So what happens next? We're joined now by Ron Woods, a Jacksonville structural engineer with more than four decades of experience in the area. Good morning, Ron. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Anne. So, Ron, the building's owners are now, they've got an emergency demolition permit to tear down this building. Um, what's the hurry in this case? Well, obviously, uh, they're paying a lot of interest for a large loan, so they want to move things along as quickly as possible, I'm sure. Um, and it's not going to be a fast process, so uh, they want to get started uh, with the demolition as quickly as they can. And so um, what would be, I mean, what is your take on the moving that quickly? Is there any um, information that could be lost in a teardown about the source of the fire? Is there time to conduct a thorough investigation? Well, I doubt that the state fire marshal is going to release the building until they at least have some reasonable um, estimation of what the cause was and where it occurred. So once that's done, then there's probably not a whole lot more they can do uh, with regard to that. Uh, The investigation on this would be extremely dangerous because the building is in a a state of partial collapse already. And so how do they approach that? Um, I know I I spoke to you after the um, parking garage collapse in Riverside, um, and they were using technology to kind of assess the situation and keep um, people from having to put their own lives at risk. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's exactly the approach that uh, that they're likely going to take. Um, robotics, um, drones, uh, anything essentially that can get in there that uh, that's not live um, to to risk life. And uh, so, yeah, they'll they'll use the available technology as best they can. The difficulty with this building is. Uh, the parking garage is relatively open. Uh, this building is chopped up into apartments, and so there are lots and lots of walls in there. So it makes it much more difficult to maneuver and to um, to get anything around in an area where you can actually observe some of those problems. What surprised you about this? Um, I mean, it's an unusual to have a structure fire this large, um, and even the fire chief seemed, you know, kind of taken aback at the scale of the destruction? Well, the the most significant part of it is all wood frame, and it's very flammable. Uh, None of the wood, for the most part, that's used in that construction is treated in any way to resist fire. Um, The the fire resistance comes from supplementary things like like the drywall um, and like the separation of certain areas so that fire doesn't progress in a certain way. So all of those things are are certainly considerations, 
but uh, it's wood frame, and so it's it's a tinderbox. And so for people who live in apartments, not necessarily luxury or even high-rise apartments, but there is a lot of wood construction in Florida, should people be concerned at how um, difficult it was to put out this fire and how completely destructive it was? Uh, yes, and I think that typically um, large fires like this and, and catastrophic conditions um, fairly often result in some at least critical look at building codes and local ordinances with regard to the construction and the protection of the construction and protection of the people who live there. So the plan to demolish this, um, they've got the emergency permit. What kind of timetable do you think ultimately we'll be seeing? I know um, certainly the Berkman, um, when that building partially collapsed, that apartment building stood, I think, for like 14 years before it was finally torn down. You expect it to move a little faster here? Uh, yeah, uh, no doubt. Uh, there were lots of issues with the Berkman that had nothing to do with the construction. They had a lot to do with um, developers going out of business and things like that. So uh, it was difficult just to to get permissions and get uh, people going on that. So that one was a different case. This one uh, everybody's live and active with regard to being involved with it. Developers are committed to it. Uh, the city is committed to it. So I would anticipate that it'll move along rather quickly once they get the release of the building itself. And you say quickly for people who, you know, don't know how an industry functions like that. That's still not just overnight, right? No, it would, uh, just the demolition of the building itself will probably take somewhere between two and three months. Okay, and how will it be done? Uh, this will be done manually. It won't be done by implosion, uh, like the uh, like ultimately the the Berkman was done. Why is that? But uh, uh, well, because of a couple of things. One, the um, wood frame structures have a lot of structural redundancy, meaning that um, when there's stress applied in an area, it gets distributed in in some odd ways sometimes. So trying to find a trigger point for implosion, like you could easily do with reinforced concrete or structural steel, uh, it's much more difficult with a wood frame structure like this. So it's better to go in and uh, take the building apart manually than it is to try to implode it in you know, one uh, large activity. And just briefly, how long do you think the adjacent buildings could be impacted? Uh, they are actually going to be impacted until those walls come down. Wow. So it might not be safe for some of those surrounding uh, businesses to, to function as normal? That's quite possible unless they, uh, there are some ways that they can um, uh, essentially protect the other buildings. Uh, they can also do some selective dismantling before they start demolishing the whole thing. That would take away the the obvious issues of uh, uh, like a, a fall zone, for instance. You've got uh, essentially seven stories of wall up there, so that's about seventy five, eighty five feet, and the fall zone is going to be that far out at least. Wow! So they'll they'll have to take um, maybe take the top uh, fifteen twenty feet off of those walls. Gotcha. Collectively. We're going to have to leave it there. But, Ron, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. No problem. Up next, whether Take it's care. 25 years of Jackrabbits or 26.2 with Donna, we do the math on the best events in the week ahead. Well, we're back. Welcome. It's a new month, a new day, and a whole new slate of things to do this week. 
We're joined now by our Thursday arts and entertainment posse, Yaya Cordona and her sweet pooch mambo. Yes, trying to stay warm today. Bueno dia, mi gente. So nice to have you here. It's delightful always to see you guys. I always love coming here. Thank you guys for having us. You're a ray of sunshine. So (laughs) February is the shortest month and uh, we've got a short segment. So give us some highlights. And it's jam-packed with events. So let's go ahead and start off with tomorrow, Friday, February 2nd. It's the Riverfront Family Fitness and Fun. The Riverfront Parks Conservancy is holding a pilot series of free downtown riverfront programs for youth and families for six weekends starting tomorrow, Friday, and running every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday until March 10th. This is all free. It's yoga, boot camps, dance um, routines, all this cool stuff. Check it out on their page at Riverfront Parks now. Good so. stuff. I, one thing that I know that's coming up this week uh, in keeping with some people's New Year's priorities and resolutions is uh, some runs, a big one, a marathon. Yes, the Donna Marathon is this weekend. It's the 17th annual Donna Marathon weekend. It includes a 5K Donna Dash, a half marathon, a marathon, an ultra marathon, event <laughs> challenges. It's going to be all at the Seawalk Pavilion. Um, and this is the only marathon in the U.S. dedicated to breast cancer research and care. So shout out to Donna Deacon. They've given out over 3.3 million in support of trans of translational genomics and immune studies. So that's this Saturday for all my runners at 8 a.m. at the event stadium, um, Everbank at the Everbank Stadium, and Sunday is at 7:30 a.m. at the Seawalk Pavilion. And just a couple minutes here, we're going to wrap it up in, in just a minute, but um, also a look back at one of the First Coast's most enduring rock clubs, 25 Years of Jackrabbit. Oh, you already know. I love Jackrabbit. It's a hole in a, uh, uh, say you say? It's a hole in the wall. It's small, but it's, I love how small and intimate it is. And you can find out some really cool um, artists that go there all the time. So yeah, it's their 25th anniversary. Um, and that will be on... February 6th, 7 p.m. It's $10 to get in. They have Universal Green, Rob Roy, Chad Jasmine, and many more performing. So Chad Jasmine, one of my all-time favorite dudes Ooh. on the First Coast. He's and I do want to mention one huge event is the Melanin Market presents Black 365. That's this Saturday at 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. It's free, and they're celebrating Black History Month. And you can find it all on the Create Jacks website. Yaya Cordona, thanks yes. so much for being here. We appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Have a great one. Yeah, we will. And stick around. We're going to be right back with a new series at the Beaches Fine Art Series and the St. Paul's by the Sea Episcopal Church. Congaree Pen, dedicated to agriculture and culinary endeavors, offering field-to-fork dining and outdoor experiences on over 300 acres. Sip, dine, explore. Information at congareeandpen.com. Join Jacksonville today on February 13th for a conversation with Duval County Election Supervisor Jerry Holland. Register for How Voting Works at jackstoday.org events. 
Nayib Bukele has transformed El Salvador from one of the most dangerous countries in Latin America to one of the safest. Bukele still remains a controversial president. Now voters in El Salvador have their say on whether to give the strongman another term in office. That story next time on The World. This afternoon at 3 here on WJCT News 89.9. Former President Donald Trump plans to get reelected by reminding Americans how good the economy was during his term. Great, even. We had the greatest economy in the history of our country. But Trump is making an unusual economic promise if he gets elected again, and it's scaring some economists and CEOs. That's coming up on Today Explained. Tonight at 6.30, here on WJCT News 89.9. We're at the end of dry January. If not dry, then perhaps a little damp. And as more Americans contemplate their relationship with booze, the industry is taking notice. Next time on 1A, we look at the rise of zero-proof bars and consider what impact the sober curious movement is having on our otherwise alcohol-drenched culture. Today, starting at 10 on WJCT News 89.9. Welcome back. The Beaches Fine Art Series will host British Ensemble Vita Guitar Quartet tomorrow evening at St. Paul's by the Sea Episcopal Church. The free event also features an exhibit by artist Maya Elaine. Joining me now by phone are guitarists Amanda Cook and Christopher Stell. Welcome to the program. Hi there. Hi. Thank you. Thanks for being Hi. here. Appreciate it. Sure. Hey, Amanda, is this performance that you're doing part of a larger U.S. tour? Yes, yeah, we have been over for just over a week now, and um, we started in Oklahoma and played at um, a wonderful uh, venue down there, and and then we went up to California and played uh, not far from San Francisco in Stockton. So, and and this week we've been really enjoying doing a lot of outreach concerts as well around Jacksonville. Christopher, tell us about the quartet. Vida means life in Spanish. What's what's the connection to the to the name of the band and to the quartet? And and what kind of music do people you know can they expect to hear? Okay, well, I think what it is, we've all had careers and we knew each other right from student uh, many years ago when we were studying at the Royal College and the Royal Academy of Music, and we'd worked as soloists and duettists, and um, it was later in our career about 15 years ago that, funny enough, we heard a concert from the Los Angeles Guitar Quartet who specialize in large arrangements of famous orchestral pieces. And all of us thought, wow, this is something else. We we, we should really try this. We should have a go at this. And um, we knew each other. We, we thought it would be a great thing to do. We started putting together some arrangements of our own. We were trying to think of a title, and I suppose the, 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 the word life came to mind because um, that's exactly what's happened. It, it was an extension of our already musical lives. So Vida took forward what we already had together as friends, really. And where do you hail from um, as friends and as musicians? Okay, so we're all from the UK and um, I live in the London area. Um, uh, Amanda lives down in Petersfield, which is near the south of the country. Uh, Mark uh, Ashford, he's in Northampton, which is the north of the country, and Mark Eden uh, is in Winchester, which again is nearer the south. But what we do, we all have a meeting place to rehearse near Oxford, so we all that's central to all of us, and we, we rehearse there in, in Oxford. And Amanda, each of you brings kind of your own interests and unique playing styles to the group. How do you choose pieces, and how are you able to blend those unique stylistic elements? Well, we definitely are, one of our priorities is to have, you know, quite a wide range of repertoire. So, you know, there are sometimes we'll we'll hear a piece and we just just know that, you know, that it works so well on the four guitars and we can sort of breathe new life into it. And, you know, I think the thing about the quartet is we have the opportunity to play repertoire that we would never get the chance to play as solo guitarists. Um, so for us, it's so exciting to have the opportunity to play, you know, at Bart Brandenburg concertos. We're going to be performing some movements from West Side Story. 
And and so I think the repertoire we choose, you know, sort of represents our kind of wide interests in music and um, and just the opportunity to bring, you know, a new a new kind of fresh interpretation of that piece, hearing it on on the four guitars. And so your training is, is a classical guitarist, Amanda. Yes, yeah, we all, all four of us trained as classical guitarists. I mean, we've all dabbled in other other styles, but our our, pri- our primary um, influence is classical guitar, and we, you know we've also played other instruments as well. Um, but we all four of us trained as classical guitarists. Yeah, but being guitarists, obviously, you know your our repertoire t- sort of dips into all sorts of styles. You know, so you you get the opportunity you know to have be um you know some influence from flamenco and latin america and then you know more mainstream classical repertoire as well so being a guitarist you are sort of naturally a little bit diverse aside from live performances you all also give master classes and workshops why is education outreach important to you well i mean um, it's, exactly. it's just so, oh yeah chris do you want to answer that Yes, I think um, I, I think to us, bringing uh, our music to community settings has always been important. We've done this a lot uh, back in the UK with a scheme called Live Music Now, which we all worked at for years, which again, very much like we're doing uh, for the Beaches Fine Arts, they sent us into community settings. It could be schools, hospitals. Um, we, we've played in, in numerous different uh, community settings, and I think... What it does, it breaks down barriers and it gives uh, people the opportunity to hear uh, the diversity of music that's out there. Uh, people that may not be able to either get to our concerts or even hear about them because sometimes the, the kind of uh, thing we do as classical players is more niche. And it's a real joy to be able to sort of uh, come up and meet people and talk about the repertoire and actually discover how they felt about the concerts. So it's a, it's a, it's a real life experience. Well, the Vita Guitar Quartet is, uh, you can see them tomorrow evening at St. Paul's by the Sea, and you can get more information at beachesfinearts.org. We're going to close with a piece you'll perform tomorrow. It's a Bach-inspired piece that features vocalist Christine Alfano. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. And that's our program. We welcome your feedback and suggestions for future conversations. And if you missed anything, you can catch the rebroadcast at 8 o'clock tonight or Get the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Join us again tomorrow when we discuss the week's biggest headlines from an ousted housing chief to a devastating apartment fire. I'm Ann Schindler, and you've been listening to First Coast Connect on WJCT News 89.9. Support for First Coast Connect is provided by Baptist Health and the North Florida TPO.